Are you ready? Ready. Last off. This is the PowerShell Podcast. PowerShell Podcast. Primarily promoting the preeminently powerful people in PowerShell. Hey, is that kind of like Peter Piper picked a peck of pickle peppers with PowerShell? <laughs> no. And now, here's your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the PowerShell Podcast. I'm Jordan. I'm here with uh, Andrew. Hello. We got a special guest, and he was very clear. He said, just call me Fred. He didn't want me to even attempt his last name. Uh, it'll be in the show title. You can read it for yourself, see if you can get that one. Hey, Jordan. Happy to be here. And thanks for taking care about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so the main focus we want on this one is security. We're going to start. But before we went there, we just wanted to kind of go over your, your background of PowerShell. Uh, Andrew's brought up a couple of the episodes that... You were his original mentor. Uh, you're the one that helped him stand up and get ready for his first uh, PowerShell conference back in 2018. Absolutely, it was like a it was like a snapshot call. I wasn't uh, a veteran speaker by that point, but still, hey, I'm a speaking or speaker. And they asked for like, hey, you've got some new guys in there, and anybody willing to mentor them? And it was like a last minute thing, and that's how I met this Andrew guy, who was you know kind of totally smelling green. You wouldn't recognize him if you're looking at him today, <laughs> and it was fun. We, we had some conversations before, some sh- short last minute. I mean, I had one of them on, when I was on the airport on the Wi-Fi. That was really entertaining, especially with that lady looking at me weirdly because I was, you know, looking using one of those um, earplug headsets. We don't notice that I've got a headset. Fun, fun, fun moment in my life there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we met actually in the conference, and it was great. And you know, there's one thing that really stuck with me about this Andrew guy, which is why I remember him to this day, besides him being a great person all in all. You know, it was his first time ever at the conference. It was really so great. And what did he do? He signed up to stand up in front of 450 nerds, straight, facing down at Jeffrey's number himself. And he was talking about something he did with PowerShell. I, I remember and that he, lightning demo. It was great. I mean, especially like how his shaking never got me above the knee level. So it was really like pulling the shit together. I mean, imagine that. Your first time at a conference, your first time at a large audience, you know, speaking up in front of the bloody inventor of PowerShell himself. <laughs> so um, Andrew, it was absolutely great meeting you there. And I'm very happy to see what you've done with that. And hey, now you're hosting me rather than anything the other way around. So let's see how we'll take it today. Here we go. I recognized his greatness. That's why when uh, we had this idea, it's like, well, we'll just bring in Andrew and I'll write his coattails to success. So far, it seems to be going okay. You know, I've been writing Fred's because that thing I talked about at that first PowerShell Summit, that was a project that Fred gave to me. Like he had a, a module. I said, hey, is there anything I can work on? He gave me this kind of thing. He kind of fed me some of the answers, kind of led me, but I was able to contribute and it was an awesome experience. And it really put, instead of a sour taste in my mouth, a really sweet taste that made me want to keep coming back for more. And so uh, because of experiences like that, it 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 reinforces the desire to like take risks and speak and do that kind of thing. So yeah, it's happy all the way around. But that's for the module PSUtil. And what, what does that module do overall? PSUtil? Oh, that's another fun hint of history. You know what PowerShell does? This PowerShell profile, where you can put things in a start script and you've got all your utilities at hand. Well, at one point, my profile grew more than 4,000 lines of code. And I decided, you know what, Fred? By now, you might just as well put it into a module and save yourself the trouble. 
So uh, peace util is basically my command line convenience thing. There's plenty of crap. And there, for example, you know about get command, that this mysterious PowerShell command that almost nobody uses? Right. Um, it has an alias built in GVM. The thing is that's two letters more than I'm willing to type. So PSUtil has one that just goes with C. So is it, it's kind of like your optimized experience, the module that you can kind of take with you and also share with others that has all kinds of things to optimize kind of how you operate. In the shell. Very cool. It has some convenience key bindings. For example, I'm an absolute alias-holic. I can't, for the life of me, not use aliases in a command line. That's great for being fast, but it's not so great for demos. So I've got a key binding that will turn my current input line from alias to full command. So it's like reverse alias. You just type in the alias into it. That is awesome. Wow. He can that, do no wrong if you do that, right? Amazing. That is fantastic. I love that. That's, well, things like that, some aliases that I need, some uh, short, quick convenience tools, like an accelerator for a select object expand property. Whatever comes up, it just convenes. Oh, and yeah. right, uh, you know about you, the, all these code snippets and knowledge snippets that you're putting in your OneNote or Note application uh, parallel? Well, I have a tool for that in, in PSU tool as well. Really? Yeah, wow. it allows me to sync that. It's JSON file spec that allows me to sync on the, uh, in, the, in my GitHub repository across multiple machines, and my knowledge base is everywhere. So it sounds like it's taking your uh, years of practice experience on shortening a lot of the time, time wasters with PowerShell, and you just gave it out to everybody for free? Um, I would rather say it's like I'm packaging years and years of ingrained habits into a PowerShell module. For, the, for that, improve years uh, of of experience in PowerShell coding, that's PS framework you're looking for. I think that you have a pretty unique uh, perspective because you've been able to spend so much time in PowerShell for such a sustained period, you know? It does uh, lead to certain things. It also leads to strong opinions, and it leads to the fact that I'm extremely enjoying that at Microsoft, they actually allow me to give beginner workshops. Why? That's awesome. They they question me, and it turns out that some of the things that I you know, know actually turned out to no longer be, tr be true. For example, some things that were true in PowerShell version 2, but someone, I don't know exactly when, stopped being quite that way. So yeah. it's keeping me fresh because, yes, on the one hand, I've got a huge experience of pro mass producing PowerShell code. On the other hand, it uh, you know, leads to kind of uh, being set in your ways if you don't keep challenging yourself on this. Workshops, trainings, teaching others is one of the greatest ways to do so. So I very much enjoy that. So you learn by teaching. Yeah, that's very cool. So I, I guess one thing that surprised me, I just kind of was sat back. I was surprised that someone had to point you in the direction of Andrew, just because knowing Andrew the way I do, I assumed he just, you would have gotten a random message somewhere. It's like, hey, you have the opportunity to teach me PowerShell. And no one says no to Andrew. Well, you know, that's perfectly correct, but there is one little technical problem in, when you look at the timeline. And the thing is, back then, Andrew didn't even didn't yet know where to ping me to do so. I'm pretty sure if he had, that would have been exactly what happened. <laughs> As it turns out, uh, he only got dragged into that opportunity versus the PowerShell Summit, where we then somewhat might have forcibly forced him to join the PowerShell Slack. I'm pretty sure he had the imagination and the self-delusion that he actually had a choice in that matter. 
<laughs> Don't worry, Andrew. We only smile behind your back. <laughs> yeah, that's it's seriously, it's just such a positive uh, pull. Whenever I won that scholarship, people were very welcoming with open arms and encouraging me and, and trying to guide me to that next step. And yeah, I like opportunities like that. So it was a good fit. And look, they got the got some done. I mean, it was also a very good investment from the community perspective, giving how much you've given back to us by now. Exactly. Yeah. Whenever you invest in people, not just me, I think this is true for pretty much everybody. If you're going to provide them something, give the way that I view it is it doesn't take a ton of effort to help someone out in a huge way. That's a huge return on investment. And then long term, it could end up in some kind of situation like I'm in now where I'm kind of contributing in a different way longer term. Or it could end up in another way where somebody may be internally to their company, keep spreading uh, good practices and PowerShell and stuff like that. And it leads to great things for them and their organization. And that ends up helping people. It, it's And it feels good. I mean, you can speak to that, Fred. It, it was a good interaction for both of us. It's a kind of a nice Absolutely. little relationship. It was fun. I got new features. And by the way, in case you're wondering, Andrew, that command you wrote, I keep using that in workshops. That's awesome. Because think... let's be honest, the default syntax display works. But if you want to try to, especially if you want to try to explain parameter sets and the consequences of picking one parameter over the other, uh, the command you wrote actually is a, that's a very grand way of illustrating that. Very cool. And you're referring to the inspect command? I forgot the full yeah. name of it. Select PSU function code? Absolutely. It highlights the parameters that are still possible, which parameters to be bound, which Something will be like mandatory, that. which will not. It's great. So it looks Very cool. kind of amusing to me because you're saying you don't like to type out a lot of uh, keystrokes for a command, and then Andrew steps in to help, and he names it select-psu function code. I feel like he was missing the missing the point here. Well, we set an alias for it. That's the oh, thing. Uh, inspect. Disinspect, yep. Exactly. So <laughs> best of both worlds, right? We're correct syntactically and then also. And that's exactly what I would have kicked this pull request over if you hadn't. I mean, giving a proper full name is important and being convenient is also important, but you can't give up on the one in favor of the other. That's 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 a, that's not the way to go. If you can't find find the command of get command, then you probably did something wrong with the naming. And if if anyone wants to read about that initial interaction, uh, your blog, the any allthingspowershell.blogspot.com, there's an article in there, the ROI of teaching others. I think it's a fantastic read if they want to see more that uh, went into the teaching and and the full takeaway. I thought that was a pretty fun read. And it's kept staying true to this very day. Yep. And I'd like to highlight, it's not only true because it's me. There's nothing special particularly about me. This is the kind of thing that happens whenever there's this kind of good reaction and support and mentorship and uh, that kind of thing. So I recommend you guys take chances too, you guys and gals. Um, you folks take some chances and contribute and reach out to the community. It's a, it's a butterfly thing. Four years ago, Andrew made me get a Twitter to talk about it, and I never used it, but it still got me to here where we're doing the podcast. Yep. Yep. I remember whenever I originally created my blog, the thought was just like, okay, just going to do like one blog. It doesn't have to be anything. And, you know, over time, you add one more, and then you kind of get into a flow, and who knows what can happen. So, Fred, we've had some talks about security, and we wanted to have more of an episode where we can actually address some of the frequently mentioned concerns with PowerShell, right? Because we're talking about PowerShell. That kind of implies that, hey, we kind of recommend that you have PowerShell enabled in your 
uh, organization. And for a lot of people, their gut reaction to that might be, oh, PowerShell, you mean the thing that's been used uh, for all these hacks that I keep reading about in the news? What do you say yeah. to them? Well, um, there, this is a discussion that keeps coming up because, you know, as a customer engineer working for Microsoft, that kind of question often ends up in one of our support channels, one of the way or the others. And inside Microsoft, then those support engineers or whatever is reaching out to, hey, who can address PowerShell security? And that often ends up on my desk. So we keep having that conversation. And there's a few points that we tend to have. Um, it usually starts with a PowerPoint slide that I now can't really show you here on the podcast. And let's be honest, PowerPoint isn't all that fascinating. But we usually start with, you know what? PowerShell has the most security features among all of the Microsoft-produced Windows-based scripting languages out there. So you need automation in the current day. And this is the most secure that you can be. So why don't you do that? And they say, yeah. Some of them say, OK, sure. Then tell me how to secure it. But Quite a few say, um, well, I want to shut it down anyway. And at the end of the day, it comes down to a very simple, a simple statement. And it is one of the best benefits of being part of Microsoft is I can actually say supported or not supported. And I can tell you shutting down PowerShell is not supported. All capitalized letters, you know, like you can't do that. There's several reasons, but one of them is that lots of operating system maintenance tasks actually use PowerShell in the background. So you're stuck with it, whether you like it or not. And if you're stuck with it, you might as well uh, secure it. And there are fundamentally really three categories that we want to look at. Shutting, uh, controlling what the attacker can use PowerShell for on a local machine how to limit what they can do when they have owned the machine one, how we can limit what they can do with other machines in the environment, how we can, how we can prevent lateral movement. And the step three, and this is where PowerShell is so much more awesome than most of the other languages out there, really, is how can we catch the attacker by what they're doing? Logging and analyzing PowerShell usage, figuring out what you're doing. And this is the main reason why I, why I tell people, you know, and if attacker is using PowerShell, you should be thanking them. Go on your knees and thank them for telling you everything that they're doing to you. They're basically telegraphing all their punches. And you're complaining about PowerShell? So it seems to me that, I, I said this before, is PowerShell is not how they get into your environment. It's what they're using once they're in. Exactly. And, and if you have the proper settings there, not only is it logged better, but you can also help that with, use that to help secure. Absolutely. You can limit what they can do very efficiently, very strongly. You can detect them when they're doing it, and you can enable your own tooling to help you react faster to whatever else they're doing. They say, hey, okay, so many attackers use PowerShell, but let's be honest, you can go on the dark net and buy an attack software that bootstraps on the machine and then tries out 10 different languages, figuring out which one will work. Uh, PowerShell has never been the, like the entry gate that the attacker used to gain entry into your network onto your machine. It's just one of the many languages they might be using. And it keeps coming out the PSConf EU and uh, at the PowerShell Summit, uh, when some of our more security folks, uh, consultants come in, they're basically saying, for our own tooling, we've moved on from PowerShell to C-sharp or to whatever other language. It's far too easy to get caught with PowerShell. Yeah, so 
Um, just to kind of simplify things for people who maybe don't are not that familiar with the security settings. So I think that you're referring to how PowerShell has really, really great logging once you have it enabled. And if an attacker is going to use PowerShell, they're going to leave behind their entire playbook. Whereas if they were to use another language or another method, uh, there wouldn't be that same logging and you would not be able to track it down. You wouldn't be able to see what's kind of going on. Is that kind of what you're saying? Exactly. When you enable script log logging, which is a group policy setting you can deploy to all of your machine, then every single piece of PowerShell code is being logged. You can then also deploy a certificate to have that logging be actually encrypted so that the attackers can't read what is being used legitimately on the system. And you can, of course, use Windows Event Log forwarding to forward it to wherever and then analyze it to Fafi Hell. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with using the login and tracking that, uh, Ashley McGlone up on Git has a Windows lab for testing PowerShell. Did I get his last name right? I'm Ashley McGlone, yeah, I believe yeah. so. Um, he did the presentation about three years ago at PowerShell Summit, like a hands-on PowerShell security lab. Um, and you can watch that talk on YouTube. But yeah, he also had a GitHub with a bunch of labs that take you through a lot of settings and how to uh, enable some of these things and how to then check the logs and even how to encrypt them and all kinds of things. So that's a, a great resource. His, his repo is Goatee PFE. And then the one we're talking about where they have the PDF of all the labs you can test out is PowerShell Summit 2019. Yeah, we'll include a link in the show notes. Um, Another very closely related blog that's great to read, or very closely related to this and has a lot of these settings and a great explanation as to these features that we're talking about, is the iHeart Blue Team blog by Lee Holmes on the PowerShell blog. Um, we'll include a, a note to that as well, um, because that's another great resource. It was written uh, about like seven years ago, but it's still on point. It's a long read, but it's it's definitely worth it. Yeah, you'll have a good understanding. Yes. If this is new to you and you're confused about things and you want to show something to your boss or to your coworkers, you can download it as a white paper as well. And in case you didn't know that, don't catch, didn't catch that name, Lee Holmes, security architect of PowerShell back in the days. But now he's moved on role-wise, but he's pretty much the one that invented PowerShell security. Yeah, and he's done some great talks on some of the... Uh, deobfuscation things and all kinds of stuff. Because uh, Fred, correct me if I'm wrong here, and I may be, but with this deep script block logging, once it's enabled, if people run like encoded PowerShell, so you know like that PowerShell code you see online that like doesn't actually look like it would make sense, but then they run it and it actually is code. With this script block logging, it you're able to see what those codes actually do, right? Uh, it depends. Some of the obfuscation is being, uh, is being undone using that because uh, the attacker needs to uh, reverse that in order to be able to actually execute this legal PowerShell code. However, some of it is not the obfuscated and it's because it's still legal without any changes. Only very, very, uh, oh my God, how the hell did they write this? Uh, and in case you're wondering how did they write it, you need to look at Daniel Bahonen's GitHub because that's how they write it. <laughs> Great re security researcher. He's done some awesome demo on that, even if he has ve is very fond of ASCII art. Very beautiful ASCII, I might point out. Anyway, uh, no, you can't automatically read everything of that correctly and uh, refinely. You might need to do some more deobfuscation work trying to piece things together. But thanks to their research and their work, you can at least pick out whether it has been obfuscated. And that's half of the battle, really. Very cool. Other than that, it's also something I would strongly recommend to. Um, 
put together from the logs like a profile, what kind of script is being run on which machine. If literally every machine in your enterprise is running this same script and it's living somewhere in the C Windows System 32, it might just be a system task. If it's not, it, we might want to profile it, see whether we can find an offer code sign to validate this is actually one of ours. But uh, the easy part of the logging thing is setting it up to get the data. The real trouble, challenge, and long-term process that you need to live with is analyzing and generating signals from it. And for that, you need to have some way to know, like, this is from Windows, this is from us, this is from somebody who has no business being on my computer. That's where the real effort comes in. And let's be honest here, there is no real magic bullet like install this package, do this thing, and you're done. There is some work that I've been commissioned to do, which is going to take some time, but we will have some better analysis tools out there in the intermediate future. But uh, even with that, you will still have to set up a plan, a system for yourself that works for you. And just uh, to make sure I'm understanding correctly. So you would enable scripts block logging, which would log uh, PowerShell execution and stuff like that to the event log. And then you would also configure event forwarding to then send all that log information to somewhere where you can analyze it and, and take it from there. Yeah, no and a bit. Um, yes, I would forward it for all of the... Um, more relevant systems. The problem is when you literally do this on every single client, let's say we're talking about a company with 200,000 clients, right. you will pretty much be drowning in data. So for clients, I would instead go for you know um, individual random samples and client-side aggregation for profile building. So that a client, for example, does on his own generate what scripts are being run, and then upload some like a file hash per script file that's being executed to a central location so we don't actually flood them. But let's say a script file with the following hash has been run five times on this computer in the last 24 hours. OK, so you don't have all the noise, but you can still see the hashes of the scripts that are being executed in your environment. Yes, so, so you can still build the pattern. And you can have like one master, this, this script hash is the following script file, so you can still look up what the hell is the code but you don't actually have to actively analyze the data centrally from all of the clients because the noise is going to kill you. Very cool. Thanks, thanks for that perspective. If you don't, if I might be asking, uh, when it comes to like execution policies, that seems to be where most of the weakness comes from is people attempt to run things when they're testing, it doesn't work, so they just go and they modify the execution policy, so it's... Yeah, well, you just had to use that term, did you? Oh, is, is no, that not a good one? Um, there is a very, very common myth in the world of PowerShell, and that is that execution policy is actually a security feature. No. It is, it is a way to bully your admins into following process. Execution policy has never run a thing, prevented a single attacker from running PowerShell code if they really wanted to. There's this great blog post, 15 ways to circumvent the execution policy. It's like, it's like, you know, your home is, you're trying to defend your home and the attacker, the you're trying to prevent burglars from coming in. So you put a stone on the lawn. That's the security effect of the execution policy. You know, all burglars come at night, they might miss the stone, they might break a leg, and that just might save your day or night as it be. Well, That's about the security go, value there. Well, I'm just gonna have to go add a second rock to my yard. 
then I'll be safe. <laughs> so uh, this is actually, this is news to me. I always thought that that was a big part of it, but, uh, cause I, I know if you said it on the machine or user level, then bypass runs on process level that overrides it. But if you set execution policy with group policy, doesn't that like get rid of the bypass oh. option? Oh, totally. It prevents the bypass option. Your execution policy is now active. Now I open the PowerShell console, go into Notepad, Control-A, Control-C, open the console back, Control-V, enter. <laughs> I don't have to run a file in order to run PowerShell. Oh, and if you're not actually sitting on the machine before that Control-A, Control-C, Control-V part, you can actually also use the get content to read the script file, script block create new, generate a script block from your script content, and then you can run script block.invoke. And guess what? The execution policy isn't going to even get an itch in its eye. Well, I, I've learned something, because I'll be honest, I'm one of those that lean heavily on apparently something that doesn't matter. But, uh, but the, the, the rock in my yard is shiny, okay? <laughs> it's a big shiny <laughs> rock. It's like a All right, so what, what are we going to do instead? I mean, how are we going to limit uh, what the attacker can do on a machine if execution policy isn't exactly going to save our day. The thing that uh, we're looking for here is something called constrained language mode. CLM, constrained language mode, is that security feature that we all love and uh, enjoy at Microsoft because for a corporate devices, you happen to randomly get that enabled. And if you're a PowerShell dev and getting that enabled is not the best thing that can happen to you. So uh, what the hell does that mean? When we use technology similar to AppLocker or Windows Defender application control, you can use third-party application that does the same thing to get the same effect, but those are the two Microsoft products that enable it. And you do not and you prevent scripts from running uh, for the user. Then the PowerShell console is running entering a state called constrained language mode. Language modes were introduced with PowerShell version two because we needed something for that new exchange remote management, because if we want the user to connect to PowerShell remoting on exchange and not enable them to you know, own the exchange server, we need to restrict what they can actually do on that PowerShell remoting endpoint. So we added a new session option to restrict the language features available. In case of exchange endpoints, that's called the no language mode, and you can do nothing except for running the codes that gracefully allow you which uh, worked fairly well in that regard. And constrained language mode is a similar kind of thing. It's not a no language mode. You can still do things, but you can't do everything. For example, you can't use most of the .NET system. A few classes are fine to use, but you can't just use whatever .NET or Windows API thing or all of the other system internal that would allow you to work around the problem. Trying to, you know, invoke the um, download of a web client from the internet and invoking the code, it's not going to lead to a happy experience here. We did an analysis over known malware that used PowerShell, and more than 99.9% of all known malware code using PowerShell would not run in constrained language mode. Wow. So this would really, if you were able to get this uh, enabled in your environment, really limit a whole bunch of the potential nasty things PowerShell could be used for. Absolutely. And here's the next good thing. Constraint language mode doesn't go account for everybody. If you, you know, code sign your script and you whitelist that signer certificate and your client machine actually considers this a trustworthy publisher, then that script file that you're running is not constrained. 
Or you could whitelist, I don't know, C program files, Windows PowerShell modules, and all the formally installed modules are fine. You could also whitelist uh, everything, whitecard uh, white for the local administrators group. That means every process that you're running as administrator is exempt. Wow. So on first sight, constrained language mode sounds like, oh, wow, that sounds like something a really good organization would do, uh, but we can't afford to do all, you know, we need to actually still do some stuff. But actually, there's ways to kind of securely still run your scripts that actually do things that maybe wouldn't normally be allowed to be done in constrained language mode. So there's still hope to use PowerShell for all the things still. Absolutely. You can enable your administrators to still do their work, and you can block what regular users can do with PowerShell in about five minutes of administrative effort. And with AppLocker, there's actually a preview mode where you can only even check in the event log whether something would have been affected. See, that's the big one, because when you first said, uh... Like a lot of the .NET libraries aren't available. I know, especially uh, at our company here, there, there's people that lean pretty heavily into if they can't find it innately, they 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 call the library. So, being able to set this up and then give them the ability to still use that is, I think, a big one. Because at first it was like this seems limiting for those that use it, but it's not the case as long as you're signing properly and approving the right people. Absolutely. Oh, and there is one more thing you need to do to make this work. This is a very hard limitation, and that is you need to enforce that only PowerShell 5.1 or later is allowed. You can, it, it, power, it, it works the same way right. for PowerShell 7, but if somebody uses PowerShell version 2 or PowerShell version 3, they don't know constraint language mode. And this is the next funny thing. Many people believe that they have disabled PowerShell version 2 by uninstalling the Windows feature. You don't. What's the appropriate way? The thing is, what you're disabling is the dash version 2 parameter on PowerShell.exe, which is nice. It's, it's an improvement already, because let's be honest, who wants to still use PowerShell version 2? Have there been I improvements mean, since 2? Some <laughs> few, slight. I mean, uh, I have been in perturbatory, uh, sorry, I have been forced to use PowerShell version 2 a few more years than would have been humane. And I'm still wondering whether I should see my previous employer for uh, validation of the Geneva Convention. But uh, probably not going to work out the way I was hoping. So uh, moving on, uh, yes, there is some improvement to usability and especially security. And the thing is, PowerShell is not PowerShell.exe. PowerShell is not PowerShell underscore ISE.exe. I can run PowerShell in Notepad if I want to. What you need to do is just check the properly proper DLL file in the Notepad, and you're good to go. By the way, if you find that DLL in Notepad.exe, you might be having a problem. Anyway, it lives in system.management.automation.dll, and you can get a perfectly fine, fully assigned by Microsoft version of that for PowerShell version 2, copy-paste it onto the target machine, and run PowerShell version 2. Unless, of course, you blacklist the DLL with the name system.management.automation.dll for versions lower than version 10, which is a publisher rule, block rule that you put onto your control policies. Wow, that's great to know. I have learned things in an avenue I didn't even consider before. This has been awesome for me. I, I know I'm supposed to be hosting, but I'm just sitting back and learning right now. This is awesome. <laughs> that's very cool. Okay, so just to clarify, you can... It may seem like you can block PowerShell in a lot of ways. PowerShell version 2, right, which would bypass all this constrained language mode, all these great new features, deep script, block logging, all of it. Um, 
But the way to do that is by blocking systemmanagement.dll uh, for versions lower than 10 when they're signed by System.management.automation.dll. Yes. System Correct. Awesome. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. So that's very good. Because I imagine uh, in the position that you're in, uh, where you kind of are dealing with a lot of people at Microsoft and stuff like that, you, I mean, I just know this is a thing, right? People will bypass all the time. If there is a different version available, they may use it, right? And then you lose Absolutely. all of this kind of thing. And I'm sure it happens in the real world. Happens all the time. Um, another thing that you need to do when you look designing the policies, there's one habit I've seen that's kind of a problem. And that is that people tend to do, go with path whitelist because we need to roll this out quick. And they whitelist two paths in the full confidence they're doing the right thing. They're whitelisting C program files and C windows. Now, one of them might not uh, hurt you. The other one is called the windows. Because incidentally, there are quite a few folders in there that users can write to. Some of them are, you know, uh, technical artifacts from previous ages, like you know this uh, spooler queue where you put in uh, uh, print jobs, things like oh. that. So there are quite a few folders in there where users write access to, and you might want to not whitelist those. Now, if you had to do this by hand, you would have a jolly old time trying to find all those paths. But there is this nice tool called Aaron Locker that builds kind of reference machine and build entire policy set for you. What's it called? Aaron Locker. Was written by the um, by Aaron Margosis, previous uh, security architect uh, as part of I think MCS, Microsoft uh, sub division. So uh, yeah, he created a tool for app locker policies. It can also do Windows Defender application control policies by now. And he didn't know what to call it. And a friend decided, you know what? It's doing app locker rules. And it's written by Aaron. So let's call it Aaron Locker. And he kind of lost that naming battle by default. Wow. And it's a Microsoft project called Aaron Locker. I love that. <laughs> I, I just read that and assumed that Microsoft has a thing against Aaron's. Nope. Well, I'm I'm not in a position to do a definitive statement of that here. <laughs> I, I think they like all Aaron's. Aaron's a, a great name. Uh, Aaron Locker is a great name for a project. But wow, that's been super insightful because I imagine these are the kinds of things where like people go through and they think, okay, we went through, we enabled everything. Cool, we're good. But in reality, unless you're making sure you don't whitelist C windows and make sure that you block system.management.automation.dll for versions lower than 10. Unless you're doing these things, you might have some a great degree of false confidence in what you have going on. So I really appreciate you bringing up some of those because that would not have come up first thing in my mind until probably it got exploited at my organization. I think I can hear people Googling constrained language mode right now. Uh, I won't be opposed to that. <laughs> yeah. Question. So uh, constrained language mode, I'm sure it does, but like it prevents string from being executed because I know that that's kind of like a thing to look for, is right? Whenever string gets turned into something that becomes executed, am I crazy well, with that? The, or depends on uh, on how you do it, but uh, generally it's okay to execute the string as long as the string itself is also running under constrained language mode. Okay, and that's the key thing in constrained language mode. It blocks almost every single thing you can do to. Uh, run um, untrusted code in trusted contexts. You will find that problem when you try to dot source uh, 
a trusted file inside of a non-trusted context. Well, the other way around. Yeah, that's usually go bad. Oh, and by the way, if you're writing PowerShell modules, which I know some in our conversation here are doing on a frequent basis, um, there's one architectural decision that is not only a horrible desire that you should never have supported and should be pointed out to everybody who does it, it actually breaks your PowerShell module in constrained language mode. And that is if you're exporting a wildcard. If okay. you want your module to work, even if you whitelist it and everything, if you want your module to work in constrained language mode and want it to have more than a single file somewhere, you need to not export wildcard. You need to explicitly list the commands, which you should have been doing for ages anyway. Yeah, okay. And just for anyone who maybe hasn't written a module, whenever you write a module, you have a bunch of commands in it. And there's like a module manifest file where you can put all of the commands in your module. And this is helpful so that you know, you can just look at one PowerShell can look at one file to kind of see everything, right? And if you don't put that, you could put a wildcard, which just means everything, right? But that's a little bit lazy. And apparently, as you're saying, it won't work in constrained language mode. So definitely don't do that. And your modules make sure to name the functions to export. Yep. All right. Other than that, we do have one more feature for preventing code execution that you don't want to allow on the local machine. And that's available on Windows, starting Windows 10. It's called Anti-Malware Scan Interface, or AMSI. Now, what this thing is, it's a close relation to script log logging. What it does is you, um, it takes the script log that you're about to execute, and rather than sending it to the event log, it sends it to the local antivirus. And if that local antivirus tells you, uh, tells PowerShell, this is a bad idea, PowerShell is going to tell you, um, well, this script log, it's probably not safe, so uh, raise your middle finger and no way I'm running this. You know this red, uh, red stuff on the screen that always cares your children when they look at what you're doing? That's <laughs> what happens when AMSI doesn't like your code. For example, if you try to run on, the, on a default Windows box, uh, PowerShell Empire on, uh, well, PowerShell 5.1, PowerShell Empire is kind of like an a demonstration proof of concept for a tech botnet control framework. Simplifying things here. Uh, anyway, uh, it's a well-known thing that every the antivirus should be blocking. And if your antivirus supports AMSI, it's going to tell your PowerShell console that this is not good for you. And now there's no do it anyway button. Uh, now, here's the important thing. Not every antivirus vendor supports it equally. Now, if you're using Windows Defender, that's, of course, covered. If you're using a third party, check with them. And if you're using a third party antivirus and you're responsible for managing that antivirus, you might want to check the documentation, whether they do it by default, whether you need to enable it, whether you need to pay an extra license or whatever. Not my call there, but make sure your antivirus actually supports that. And uh, just make sure I'm understanding. So the AMC is an anti-malware scan interface that was released in Windows 10 that allows like Windows kind of locally, Windows Defender, I guess, to scan the scripts before they're run. And if it's a malicious thing or if it detects it as being malicious, it will prevent execution. Yes. Very cool. And the thing is, it's not just Windows Defender. It's whatever right. active antivirus decides to tie into that. Because it's an That's interface, it. right? So whoever can plug into the interface. Yes. Very now, cool. um, uh, there are, it's also another interesting um, software I've seen out there by um, Ironman software. 
that, that allows you to basically custom police of what command is allowed to run on your machine, like blacklist individual PowerShell commands through that MC interface. Wow. So you could even implement your own uh, client that validates and locks. I'm sure everyone now is uh, feeling more secure and, and, and safe. So uh, thanks to Security Blanket. Uh, I, I felt like, and this was my fault, we, we dove into security before we got to highlight a lot of the other uh, contributions that modules you have. And I just figured uh, we, we for sure want to give people a chance to see everything. Uh, so you said you have uh, one that's newer or coming out that's uh, with the PS Azure Migration Advisor. Oh, uh, that's uh, that's a fun project that I've been uh, tasked to do with a for a customer. And it's an absolute demonstration of there's no kill like overkill. They actually paid me to really over engineer this thing. So I'm absolutely in awe uh, by what I can do and all of this. I'm happy to break more about some of the details, but here's the key thing. There are two PowerShell modules that some people in the world are using. It's called Azure. One of them is called Azure AD. The other is called Amazon Line. Both of those are Microsoft modules for interacting with Azure AD. The thing is they're both using the good old Azure AD Graph API rather than the Microsoft Graph API. And the Azure AD Graph API is being retired, currently planned for the end of the year. And as far as currently looking, I would not hope they get an extension. And that means every single PowerShell code that's using a command from one of those two modules needs to change the way it works. You need to use different tools, for especially something from you know, Microsoft.graph. There's, uh, for most of the things, there's a corresponding command. Some of them don't map perfectly. Some of them don't have a command, but have an API surface. So you need to custom invoke REST method something. And well, you need to do that migration, but you know how admins work. I've got a problem. I'm going to Google or Bing for a solution. I find a blog that is two years old, but has that solution. So I copy that, adjust it to my needs, put it in the task scheduler, and forget about it. That was three years ago. By now, that blog post uh, is maybe still there. Maybe it's offline. The blogger has stopped blogging two years ago because you know life moved on, and he didn't have the time anymore. And well, you really have no idea about the script anymore. Hell, actually, you don't even know the script exists anymore until somebody tells you something, some sync or something doesn't work anymore. And you, you need to investigate what's happening here. So now you need to A, first find all of your scripts that you need to fix. Then you need to figure out how to fix every single one of them. While you're still busy in your workday and possibly not even all that good at PowerShell, you just stole some snippets and did that, or your predecessor did that. So you're standing there and thinking, um, thank you, Microsoft. So I decided, well, that's a bad situation. A customer decided, hey, Fred, fix me, build me a solution for that. So what we've got here now is a scanner that you can basically do a recurse pipe to um, uh, uh, scan uh, whatever. I keep forgetting the name of the command. And then export CSV, and you get an entire marching list of what to do, which file, which line, which command, what should it look now in the future. And if you can't know, don't know what or have some special thing, we can't just you know, uh, provide some text, some intelligence, some advice on how to do that. Wow. So that seems quite timely, right? Because we only have till the end of the year. Um, but so if basically, if you're using the Azure AD or the MS Online modules, those are going to be moved to Microsoft Graph. And your module will take a script file, 
analyze it and kind of tell you what needs to be changed or kind of point you yep. in the next steps. That's huge. Exactly. I, I really hope that if you have scripts, if you're using some Azure AD stuff, uh, check those scripts. I know that at my previous employer, I have some that will need to be updated. So I will definitely be reaching out to them <laughs> to let them know about this. In that case, I need to point out something that's about to ship soonish. And I finally managed to make the time for the final thing is, you know, currently it is like you go with get child item and it implies you kind of already have them on your file system. But what if you've been a busy beaver and have been a good guy and putting all of your code into source control? You know, spin up some Azure DevOps services instances and have some projects and organizations and your entire company has a huge estate, code estate in the cloud. Well, we will have a, like, get the Azure DevOps organization pipe to get Azure DevOps PowerShell file, pipe read AC script file, and it will tell you every single PowerShell script in every single branch of every single repository in any <sighs> single project in your entire bloody organization. Oh my gosh. I, I do like things that do the thinking for me. I don't want to do too much of that on my own. That's amazing. Well, in that case, I do have bad news for you because, oh. you know, it's only going to give you an advice on how to migrate the script. You will still have to do the coding yourself. Well, I do include the renaming option, but I'll be honest here, renaming is usually the least of your problems for those because the new commands, they are not a perfect feature map. We have some old commands that split into two separate commands in the Graph API or um, one command that now needs three or four separate commands in the new API. So there is no perfect answer, even if they had the same parameters, they don't have the same parameters. Very cool. That's an awesome project. But the real, you know what the really fun thing is about this? Pete's Azure Migration Advisor really is only you know a boilerplate data provider and some tooling to help you deal with the Azure specifics. The scanning engine beneath it is a different PowerShell module called Refactor. And you can give it whatever translation policies that you want. For example, you can uh, say, hey, I want to find all instances of command get something and rename them to get something else. And I want to rename those three parameters as well while I'm at it. Oh, gosh, you have such a great, um, I don't know, mind for thinking of this kind of thing and how to build tools on top of tools and interfaces and great ways that they interact and build. It's very cool to see because for me, it's like a, a little bit above of, of where I'm operating from. So it's really cool to see because um, it makes sense. Why wouldn't you, if you're going to create this tool that uses this kind of thing in the background, why not make that thing in the background reusable? Yeah. Right. So, oh, next feature that came with Refactor is another scanner that's called a break and change scan. So you can define for issue for your module in version two, I broke the following command, or for the following command, I broke the following parameters. And then you can load multiple additional uh, so those definition files, and then I can scan like if I were to upgrade this script to use module version two to module version four, where do I have breakage? Of course, if I can do it for one uh, file, I can do it for all of them. And all of those, I've got an Azure DevOps soonish. And I will, of course, be including ac.wildcard uh, scanning files for all of the Azure modules, because they kindly do have a breaking change documentation. So I just need to convert that into the definition files and that stuff. But oh. it's a fairly simple PowerShell document file, PSD1 for, uh, format. So everybody could have a definition for their own module in their repository. 
then they broke what? Wow, that's awesome. And you said that other engine is called Refactor? Yes. And that is another one of your modules? Yep. Okay, I'm going to look that one up next. Include that in the show notes. Uh, yeah, Refactor, let me put the notes in there. And you have a lot of see, projects. Yeah, another module uh, it says you worked on PS Framework. Yes. Oh, now you, you really opened Pandora's box. <laughs> Oh, we haven't even gotten you excited yet? Because it feels like... <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You just, you know, you know, just, you just had me brag about my latest toy. Now you have me bragging about my magnum opus. Okay, let's do it. All right. Now, um, as uh, some of those who know me already realized, I'm not only enthusiastic about all my coding, I'm also bloody lazy. That means that when I do a lot of coding, I try to you know, accelerate my workflows, make it cheaper, make it easier, make it more convenient so that it can have high quality code that actually doesn't take me much effort. And that's where Peace Framework comes in because that's like my huge scripting framework of resources that are totally over-engineered, do way more than just the basic functionality you usually can justify to write for your own project. Let's take, for example, logging. I mean, how many times have you written write log? Yep. And kind of write it, maybe throw it as a function, maybe, yeah. Yeah. We put up, put up a function or two, make some, make some thing work that you can write a log file. But that's about all of the effort that we can usually in a busy day invest in that because actually we have a business problem to solve and logging is usually just kind of incidental to that. Yes, we need it logged, but we don't have the time to do it really, really right. So we generally have some log files, sometimes crappy, sometimes less crappy. But usually we end up with uh, some form of export CSV or add content to, or our file to make that log file work. The problem with that is multifold. For example, uh, what if you do have one multi-threading run spaces and want to write to the same log file? Um, you're writing to the file is synchronous. That means your file I always slowing your script. If you're trying to process uh, 100,000 users with 10 log messages per user, that's 1,000 uh, disk IOs. If you log into a network shared, that is totally going to ruin your script performance. You'll spend more time logging than, do, uh, than you know, running script. So um, lots of problems with that. And Peace Framework has that handled for you with logging to whatever, wherever, however, asynchronously, background, thread safe. Uh, we can't even do uh, mutex, um, mut use mutexes to coordinate logging between multiple PowerShell processes. You can define your logging in the script. You can define it in the process. You can import some config file that tells you where to log. You can roll out logging per group policy, and you can do all of it in parallel. And if the default logging provider doesn't work for you, well, it's plugin-based, but your bloody own logging provider. <laughs> in, just for example, we can support event log, log files in different formats. Uh, CM trace, for example, one of the favorite ones from the SCCM folks. SQL server database tables, Splunk, Graylog, Azure Log Analytics. Uh, even the console is an available log. Log rotate is, of course, also part of it. Okay. So for the argument for logging, it's like, okay, if you're already writing a write log command, if you just instead use write PSF message, you don't have to think about if the script gets huge and is writing to the same log file and needs caching and this and that, you don't need to think about that. It's already taken care of. And there's configuration that could even plug into it if you need to change your logging provider in the future, right? Ideally, you're maybe doing this for an organization and maybe scale or something like that. And you need to kind of, it would be nice to take these things into consideration with the addition of no like engineering efforts to add this, right? It's already been kind Absolutely. of. Absolutely. 
and you can take your take you can share your code, your script with uh, your friend in another organization, and your script will work with their logging problems as well without needing to change the script, because they just can roll out the different logging configuration because the logging doesn't need to be part of your script code anymore. Right. Other than that, it includes a lot of other everyday and not quite everyday uh, solutions to make your script code better. Uh, for example, uh, tab completion, dynamic tab completion. It's a built-in feature to make that a lot more convenient. And you can have also a dynamic validation, like a dynamic validate set only without the pen paying the penalty of having dynamic parameters. Don't be using those. I will okay. know. I will get you. <laughs> no, uh, silly jokes or duck jokes aside, um, uh, it provides um, a way to do type completion and generate the data. And it also includes the capability to cache type completion data. For example, let's say you want to type complete your domain controllers. I mean, that's that's a great thing. You don't want to hard code your domain controllers into your code because you might have multiple domains. But once you are in the environment, Odds are these domain controls aren't going to be changing all that frequently. So caching them for eight hours and not incurring the data gathering penalty every single time you have complete kind of makes sense. It definitely does. Especially I know I haven't worked at a huge org, but I it even at a small org, I worry about querying things too much. And imagine at a larger org, I would I would be happy to set limits on how often we're querying uh, for things like that. Very cool. So I do have a question with the, the the keeping the history of the tab completion. Does that at all impact, or does it work with the PS read line where it does the IntelliSense thing, where it automatically kind of helps with commands based on your previous history, or are those compatible, or does it have to be a different run case? Um, actually, um, the new PS read line features are working uh, complementary to that. Oh, that's fantastic. When you do tab completion in the current predictive intelligence thing, um, you can either trigger predictive intelligence or you can trigger default intelligence. Uh, I also think there was some like where you can have both in the same menu, but they're clearly separated where you get the intelligence from. So the two systems don't collide with each other because my system really ties into the default tab completion. And that would have been broken as well. By the way, uh, also PS Framework tries to support PowerShell version 3, not just 5. And I got Jason Shirk's agreement to include his um, tab expansion plus plus core infrastructure that was baked into PowerShell 5.0. So if you in, in install PS Framework in a PowerShell version 3, you get the same tab completion that you only usually used to get in PowerShell 5 and later. Cool. Not the predictive intelligence, sorry. Very cool. Uh, There's also. There's, there's plenty of other features in there, Conf uh, dynamic configuration management, parameter classes, uh, um, uh, simple utilities such as select piece of object that allows you a lot more uh, fluid select, uh, use than select object without having to use all of these nasty hash tables. Simple improvements for existing commands. Uh, heck, um, even the um, convert uh, from PSF array that flattens your data structures before exporting to CSV, so you don't get a system.object open square bracket closing square bracket. Oh, whoa, data. hold on. Wait a minute. Because I know that happens a lot. You know, whenever you're working with some kind of object and you export it to CSV and you just see the name of the type of object, you don't see the data that you saw in the console. So, what was the name of that command? Convert from PSF array. Just yes. put it in between, and that's that. Wow. Um, 
I don't know if you've had that, Jordan, but like I can recall it on so many occasions. And I recall also before I was like a little bit better at PowerShell. That's a bit of a showstopper at times. That's a bit confusing and yeah. frustrating when that happens. When you export and it doesn't have the same date of what you see that prints out, that is having a single command to clean that up would have saved me so much time. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, I wanted to ask you about the configuration just a little bit and some use cases for it. Um, looking at your uh, documentation, which is awesome, psframework.org, check it out. Uh, it looks like you're using it, for example, like set PSF config to set mymodule.mail.server. So you're you're setting the configuration for the mail server um, that would um, then be used in a script, for example. That might be let's step one one step back and think about the original use case or co consideration think of it like the options menu for your powershell module now when you as the module code consume the settings like you want to read the setting what smtp server am i supposed to be using mm -hmm. you call get psf config value name of the settings you get the value as the module that con that uses the configuration system you don't have to care where the value comes from now, inside of your module code, you declare like a manifest for this is my setting. They can provide, they will provide the name. You can provide a default value. You can put in a description, validation, some kind of reaction you want to happen when somebody changes the setting. And wow. if you more other metadata, you can define that in your module. So when somebody runs get PSF config, not config value, but get PSF config on the console, they can get a table with all of the settings and a description of what each setting does. Now, they, there are different ways where they, the settings can enter PS framework, so your module consumes them. And one of them would be for the user on their console to run set piece of config, name, value, and that's it. What you could also do is you could use a register piece of config as that user and write that value to the registry or a configuration file in your user profile. This works cross-platform, so on Linux, you don't get registry, but you get config file. And if you do, then the next time you start the module, PS Framework will automatically grab that data and your module automatically has the new settings, the new preferences. For example, PSUtil, my you know, convenience tool, it has a command called temp. It will move your current path to the temp folder. Now, this would be the environment variable temp by default, but that's not the temp folder we actually use often enough. So you can change that configuration setting, and now your temp will go somewhere else. And the same for manager or whatever other setting you want to provide. However, you can also um, generate a JSON file and put that into your source control. And then in your pipeline, you run import piece of config on that JSON file. And now have all the settings in the JSON configuration file, which can be one or many, loaded to the PowerShell process. And now your module uh, will automatically use their settings. But your module no longer has to care whether this was uh, the default value, whether it was from the user running something on the console, whether the pipeline imported something from JSON, whether the data was provided by environment variable. Right. They're kind of segmented. Very cool. Very useful. So on the short end, if you kind of wanted to get started, you could just set it locally. Um, but if you wanted to like really adopt this, you can uh, really apply the settings to your modules. Um, does this tie into GPOs at all? You can, totally. You just need to roll out the uh, registry key via GPO. Very cool. We can so support that scale. at user level, at, uh, at machine level. 
you can make it optional as a new default value. You can make it so that the user cannot even change it anymore. Very cool. I, I love how your stuff scales to very, very high degrees. That's um, uh, that I missed something that has been really helpful with working with Microsoft because a lot of my customers that I work for really start at 200,000 seats or more. So I need to scale by default, otherwise it just won't work. Yeah, understandable. Oh, and one thing, one more thing that I have in this frame, this one feature I absolutely must point out because it's the most life-changing thing for you as a developer. You know, when a user comes to you and tells you, sorry, your code doesn't work. And now you ask him, yeah, so what doesn't work? And they say, yeah, there's this red stuff on the screen. <laughs> Yo, what screen? What, where's the screenshot? Um, I'll get back to you two days later. Where's the screenshot? Oh, right, right. I wanted to. Yeah. So um, getting proper debugging data is a problem. And then uh, even if you tell them how to do it, the more you tell them how to give you more debugging data, the greater the attrition, the, the not wanting to deal with that, the less answers you get. It's a nightmare. So there's a PS framework command that's going to change your life. It's called new PSF support package. You tell them to run this, it will drop a zip file on their desktop. You tell them to mail you the zip file, and you will have input history, console, buffer, screenshot, modules loaded at which version, DLL files available, operating system, PowerShell version, uh, RAM configuration, CPU configuration, architecture, uh, all the logging that you sent to PS Framework that's still in memory, which is the last 1,024 log entries. By default, you can increase that by group policy. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Very useful. So if you're troubleshooting some PowerShell in your organization, if they run this command, whoever it is asking for help, it will grab a whole bunch of data and you won't have to ask 20 follow-up questions to try and troubleshoot. You'll have everything you need right there in the zip file. Absolutely. Very cool. I'll, I'll be honest. I'm uh, feeling like I've been using PowerShell wrong this entire time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me tell you about the second module of the PS Framework project then, because there's also this module called PS Module Development. Oh, you know, Peace right. Framework is like the scripting infrastructure, the tools that you would consume in your code, like the dependency that you take. Peace module development is what enables you as a developer to actually write that code. For example, it includes an entire templating engine with predefined templates for PowerShell module projects or Azure Function apps or whatever else you can use with PowerShell. What that means, for uh, just to put it into words, I have a live audience after having prepared the functions beforehand, admittedly, I have set up a PowerShell module, pushed it to GitHub, create a new branch, create a pull request of all of the changes, had all the automatic tests running, work, merge into master, and publish to PS Gallery in 10 minutes straight. That's awesome. And that's also why if you look at my GitHub and check out those projects, they all look the same. <laughs> You can really crank them out. And that makes it just so cheap to create a module that honestly, I haven't written all that many traditional scripts in a long time because writing a module is just cheaper for me. Yeah, and you make it easy on yourself. It's not, it takes a lot of the burden off. You just have to worry about typing the commands. You don't have to worry about thinking, oh, how am I going to do the folder structure? What's this going to be? No, you just. Is that automatic test? Yeah, exactly. The tests are built in, boom. So this whole time, I'll be honest. I brag a lot about how, how lazy I can be with the right work. And I feel like uh, I, I've witnessed next level. I've, I've always been apparently semi-pro at putting in the work to be lazy. And I have now talked to 
I, I found out the difference in the gap between semi-pro and, and professional, and this is some amazing stuff. I'm I'm going to be stealing all of your work. Go so wild. That's why right? <laughs> if you can, if you can find it back for me and report that, that would be even more awesome. I don't even want need you to fix it. I just reporting it is already going to make my day. Of course, you feel free to fix it if you want it. If you're stealing my stuff, I'm very happy about feedback of any kind. Future requests also work, by the way. Oh, and that thing on uh, PS module development, it has a few more features that I really, really enjoy. Uh, for example, there's this command called restart PSMD shell. What it does, okay. it restarts the shell. I mean, imagine, think about it. You're trying to develop a module, and you're ready to do the next test run. The problem is you can't build your module because it contains C-sharp parts, but the DLL is still bound in the last, from the last test run. Hit RSS, RSS for restart PSMD shell, RSS, enter, click build on your Visual Studio, and by the time you go back to your PowerShell concept, you're going to clean your environment. It makes it test iterations very fast. And it also has a few parameters for the you know, future freak among stuff, which totally doesn't include me, such as you know, as admins, so you get an elevated shell or no profiles, so you actually don't import the default modules, which is very handy when I'm trying to build the next version of those modules that I import by default in my profile. Here's Yuto, looking at you. Or uh, um, yeah, I think there was also that no exit option if I just want to clone the console without killing the old one. Um, there's tools for searching in the type system. For example, if I know, oh, this graph command actually expects a parameter on uh, I whatever interface uh, type. So it's an interface, and I now need to look for all of the types that actually implemented to get the correct object. So the graph module will take it. Well, find PSMD type. I whatever interface, and it will get me all of the types that implemented. Oh wow, nice! Or get PCMD assembly if you want to know what actual uh, DLL assemblies are loaded in your memory. And then there's this thing, you know, there's you know about the module called Invoke Build mm -hmm. or Saki. Yeah, I'm familiar well, with those. Well, there's no, there's also a PSMD build system. Mm. There is one key difference between those. And that is with Saki or with uh, Invoke Build, you're kind of expected to write your own build logic. I don't. Think of uh, think of the PSMD build kind of like the uh, like the extensions that you got on Azure DevOps or on the um, uh, GitHub Actions Marketplace. You can you know get your pre-built action and just configure it. Same yeah. thing for here. You can. Um, you can set up a you can configure an action connect PS session to the following virtual virtual machine on localhost using that those credentials. Then you use those um, use that PS session to deploy five different modules to that uh, virtual machine and then kill the remoting session. And once you've got that set up and config, which is a short PSD one file or JSON file, all you do in your console is click build and the latest version is deployed to your test environment and you're ready to roll for the next test. Wow, very cool. So now I've got these uh, workflows for two of my key projects that I'm working on. I've got them on my work machine and a folder. I just select the one that I'm working on this week. And when I'm, I'm ready to, for example, test the new iteration of the Active Directory Management Framework, I just hit build and switch screen to the virtual machine interface. And um, I usually already have the latest version ready to rumble again. Wow. And Fred, I'm looking through your repositories. It sounds like you even have a lot more uh, 
projects. I think we'll have to have you back at some point to chat about some of your other stuff you have. Uh, yeah, I, I am currently at about 200 repositories on GitHub. Almost all of the modules. Heck yeah. Uh, honestly, so to, when you're already talking about a few other projects, one of them I want to point out, kind of advertising plug here, uh, I also maintain the Active Directory Management Framework, which kind of allows you to architect your entire Active Directory topology from schema extensions and default permissions, site topology down to individual permissions and organizations, group memberships, that kind of thing. Put it in the source control and then test your environment, whether it's in the desired state or not. And in opposite to regular desired state configuration, you can cherry pick which changes you want to apply. If you are interested in that kind of thing, I can only encourage you to join us this June in Vienna for the PSConf EU, because I will one hour brag about only that toy. Uh, sorry, yeah. uh, that toolkit and infrastructure, and you totally want to see that. It's totally, I'm totally not thinking about it as a toy, definitely not, but it's fully documented under ADMF.1. Okay, so what was the name of that module? Was that monitoring.active directory? Nope. Or was that Active Directory Management Framework, or ADMF. And is that under your GitHub, or is that? It's an organization uh, that I own. So you can find it on my GitHub. Check out the organization that part of one of them is called the Active Directory Management Framework Project. Okay. Or you can just go to ADMF.1. You get the website with the video and all of the documentation because you've got everything documented. How it works, what we can do, and how you can generate the data from PowerShell from an existing Active Directory, at least for some of those. It's kind of not intuitive or easy to code for some of the features. So the uh, get it from your AD doesn't work everywhere all of the time. Wow, that's awesome. Honestly, we should maybe have you back and go on a deep dive on some of that. Especially is that one where there's non-standard, there's uh, gotchas for that one. I think that'd be interesting for people that are adopting it to get the inside look. Well, as you figured out, uh, as you found out today, the problem is not getting me to start talking. So, um, yeah, I was happy to brag about my toys. Well, awesome. As you should. I mean, just looking through just a fraction of these, like the things you built is is astounding. I'm actually excited to dive in. Uh, we'll make sure we'll we'll capture all of this into the show notes. So people have links they can click on. They can get there to to research on their own. And there's no better way to learn. I mean, you learn by teaching, but if you're like me, you learn by importing the module and start playing with it and uh, see what you can do with it. Yeah, we covered a lot today. This might be our most extensive show notes yet. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you coming on today. I think, uh, we I mean, normally we kind of go, here's some things you, things you can learn. And this one, it, it was a fire hose of information. So hopefully people use this, they start running with it, they start learning everything they can. Uh, I mean, for the PowerShell Podcast, uh, th thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you're listening to this on... I guess any platform, if you feel like this is five stars and if you listen to Fred talk and don't think it's five stars, that's on you. That's that's that's, that's a issue you need to look in internal on. Uh, and if you have any questions or you want us to uh, talk about any specific subject, just email us at powershow at pdq.com. And uh, th uh, thanks for listening. Thank you, guys and gals. Thanks, everybody. Hi, and you're on. Thanks for listening to the PowerShell Podcast with your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. Blah, 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 blah. The PowerShell Podcast is a production of PDQ.com.